Hello, world. Happy 2021. Happy New Year. Welcome to the In My Footsteps podcast. I am Christopher Setterlin, coming to you from the popular vacation destination known as Cape Cod, Massachusetts. This is episode six of the podcast. So how was everyone's New Year's? Did you stay up, watch the ball drop? I I stayed up until 12.01 and I was out cold after. What about New Year's resolutions? Have you made any? That's always the big thing. January 1st hits and it's the soft reset on life. A lot of people, their New Year's resolution is to drop some weight. I know that's mine. The COVID-15 is real. I am living proof of that. Not proud of it, but you got to take care of that. So actually, that ties into this week's podcast. I'm going to have an interview segment, the first one on the podcast, with a great trainer and a personal friend. Her name is Kaylin Orr, also known as Coach KO. She is going to answer some questions about getting fit in the new year, give you some tips. It's going to be a two-part interview. This week will be more generalizations, whereas next week it'll be some Q&A from listeners and a little more details you know, give you the tools to make 2021 the year that you become the best version of yourself you can. I want to give a big thank you to all of you that made episode five my fastest downloading episode yet. It was the fastest downloaded in the first week, and it broke the previous mark in the first 24 hours. So I'm really thrilled that this seems to be gaining some traction, that people are actually interested in the subjects I talk about, which is great because I love it. I love coming up with the layout for these shows and getting to share them and hoping that people like them as much as I like sharing them. If you haven't listened to episode five yet, or you want to go catch up on the other episodes, not that there are any sort of order. It's not like a comic book. You can listen to one and it's not going to affect the others, but you can go to any of the places that you stream podcasts iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, all those, and just check them out. And if you have any ideas for potential topics in the future, you can always shoot me an email, ChristopherSetterland at gmail.com. Email, you know, questions, comments. I'm always looking for ideas to push forward and things like that to make it better each time. That's the goal. And my love of history is a big tie-in with this podcast, Cape Cod, Massachusetts, New England, and beyond. That's always been my favorite subject from high school when I was a student at Dennis Yarmouth Regional High School. And my history teacher, Mr. Jim Coogan, who also became an author, he kind of stoked the fire of the love of history. And that kind of goes into tracing my family tree and doing things like that on Ancestry.com. And speaking of that, I finally ordered myself an Ancestry DNA kit. And so that came in the mail. It took a while, but it came in the mail. And I did the whole thing. You got to spit in the tube and seal it and send it off. But when that comes back with my DNA results, I'm going to make sure to have that as a segment on here because it's definitely worth it to check out and see where you're from. Learning about your roots is great, and I've enjoyed all of that on Ancestry. So this will be interesting, as this is the first podcast of 2021, and I had said in the last one that my goal is to do more podcasts. So I'm going to try to do three weeks on, one week off, 
So instead of being every other week, there's going to be another one coming next week. And so that's going to be interesting to see just how much work it is and how hard it is to actually make these good and do my research properly. But, you know, that's my problem. Hopefully you all will enjoy it. So as I said, this is episode six of the In My Footsteps podcast. This week we've got the interview with Coach KO. It's going to be very good for you guys and for me. I'm using that as my own excuse to jumpstart my return to fitness. In addition to that, though, we're going to go back in time to a molasses tsunami that hit Boston. We're going to take another trip in time where I share my days of living in Las Vegas from just over 20 years ago, and we will talk about the first real major UFO abduction story that took place in New Hampshire. All that and more coming to you now on the In My Footsteps podcast, and let's go take a walk. Coming up now is my exclusive interview with Kalen Orr, Coach KO. This is going to be taking place in the Studio X Fitness Center in Hyannis. So if you hear some echoes, it's we're inside of a, a classroom. I'm also using a little handheld digital recorder also. So that might change the audio just a bit. But anyway, let's jump right into the interview right now with Kalen. All right, everyone. I am coming to you live from Studio X Fitness Studio in Hyannis. This is the New Year's resolution part of the podcast. Ooh. I'm interviewing Kalen Orr, fitness trainer extraordinaire. Oh, yeah. So a little bit about how we know each other. We worked together at Mid-Cape Athletic Club four or five, oh, now it's like uh, five years ago. Mm-hmm. Oh, five years. Time flies. Mm-hmm. We wet our feet there and then went out and about on our own. She is extremely talented, very knowledgeable, and that's why I chose her as far as the New Year, New You type of fitness part for the podcast and for this video. I'm shooting a video too for all you folks. I just want to start off, just tell the listeners, the watchers, how you got started in fitness. What got you there? Okay. Hi guys. It's Kaylin or I call myself Coach KO with a K. Can stand for my nickname, can stand for knockout, whatever you want. All right. So I grew up a competitive gymnast. So I was hardcore. Um, I started working at gyms like the YMCA and Gym Express in Centerville years, like when I was 18. Um, I never worked on the other side of the desk. I would always just boss them around. That's what I remember as far as when I first met you, you were working behind the desk yeah. at Mid-Cape. Telling everybody hi when they came in, bye when they left. I was really good at that. Um, then I started teaching classes. And really, I call that my performance part of things that I do, which I still do. Show up, put on a show for people, make them forget their day, have a blast, sing, dance, goofy, only. Um, and then I started taking on small groups at Mid-Cape first, boot camps. I went privately with boot camps, which I still have today, three years later, same people. And then um, going to fitness conferences every year, getting a million certifications. And now, after that, I'm, I just signed on to do my A certification, which is more of the scientific side of things. Sweet. See? She knows what she's talking about. Right? So, I'm just, as much as I can learn, as much as I can grow, I'm always learning from somebody, but I'm always teaching somebody something, too. What are some of the certifications you have, just in case the people 
don't know quite what that means. Oh, okay. So I have a personal training certificate that I've gotten a few different times from AAIISMA, which is a conference that comes to the Cape. It's a lot of letters. Yeah, it is. I don't even know. I forget what it stands for. Sorry. Um, local. They, they travel. Some of the best instructors and people that you can learn from. Um, they level one and level two master trainer. Um, just brush up on your info every year. I have group fitness, which is just here's how you lead a class. I have cardio kickboxing. I have body combat. I have bar yoga, Pilates. Now when I say I have yoga, I'm a little bit of a faker because it's not the real 200 hour yoga. It's the weekend yoga, but... But you know know how to lead a class though. Right, but you know what? I I dove into it myself that way, so I feel like I can relate to the people who aren't into yoga as much and I kind of fuse the yoga and fitness and then I even brought like the yoga breath into fitness, so now I'm like a breath coach. It's really cool. So just kind of pick and choose the things from each thing that I like to use and from my gymnastics background and I fuse it all into some really cool ways of of working out. It works. It works. That's the main thing is Mm -hmm. that it works and you've got people that have been loyal to you for years now and that's that's the real proof is that people come to you for fitness and stay. That's the proof. Mm -hmm. So obviously it's the new year and everyone wants to get in better shape. Well, not everyone. But a lot of people, that's their goal. That's one of my goals. Mm-hmm. I need to drop 15 pounds, COVID-15. I mentioned, at, I mentioned at the top of the podcast so yeah. that I'm not just spouting it. I'm going to actually live it. We're going to live it. What advice can you give to people that are looking to jumpstart their fitness in 2021? Okay, ready? A New Year's resolution. Fantastic. Nothing wrong with them. Absolutely love it. It's like the people who love a Monday. A Monday or a re-Monday. I'm going to start Monday. That is great for this reason. It gives you time to prep for that goal. Okay, it's going to be New Year's Day or maybe the second day of New Year's Day. We're going to prep for that. We're going to make sure we have bought food or we have a journal or we bought a gym membership. And that's great for someone who can handle that pressure. Okay, it's pressure. I have a friend that needs me to tell her exactly what to do and she'll do it. Or there's the people that need a little bit more of a hand-holding, need the small ease into my new life way of being. So if you're the person that can take the pressure, great New Year's resolution, make it, keep it, go. But be prepared for failure and be ready to get right back up and keep going. We're all going to fail. It's not the failure. It's the giving up. That's the problem. So my best advice is the small shifts. So little shifts every day are what make the solid changes for the rest of your life. So taking out creamer and using almond milk in your coffee, waking up every morning and stretching for 10 minutes and keeping that commitment every day, anything, you can insert anything there, and then celebrating those small wins. Oh, I'm awesome, I did it for a week. I'm awesome, find something great to congratulate yourself and that is a way to keep you on your track. If you did something wrong and you want to fail the rest of the day, it's like when you get out of bed and stub your toe, that's it, your day's off, you're gonna have a bad day. That's what we tend to do with the New Year's resolutions, make a a black and white decision. When if you just ease your way in, those small things every day, grow from there, make new small things, you'll tend to stick to it and do a better job. So that actually leads into the the follow-up question was, what, what do you tell these people that I've seen it working in gyms. You get flooded with new clients the first week, two weeks. Mm -hmm. And like you said, the first hint of 
difficulty, failure, hardship, they are done. What can you tell them to kind of stop them from making it a three-week kind of experiment? Well, if you know me, and I do exactly what I do, I'm the first person to be like, oh my God, I did this last night. I will share my failures with people because, I mean, I'm a fitness professional, but um, I'm the first person not sticking to my goals or not this. And everyone always says to me, well, well, you're fine. You work out all the time. I still have the same goals and wants and slip-ups, and I still feel bad when I eat 16 cookies like I tend to do. Um, And I feel just like you feel. It doesn't mean just because I do this for a living that I don't feel those ways about those things. So I can really... What's the word I'm looking for? I can really understand what they're talking about. There you go. You can relate. So some some advice, some some more motivation is is to get a buddy. Someone who doesn't have to be your trainer or your instructor. It can be someone to hold you accountable. Um, That tends to really work. And I just found myself a buddy in... My boyfriend, Chris, um, he tends to tell me he's really disappointed when I eat too many cookies. Uh-oh. So it really should makes I you ed- feel that. Should I edit this part out of the video? <laughs> no. Okay. It's, right. it, it helps. It helps someone to keep you accountable, and you really just aren't going to make yourself feel really bad. One more thing I need to make sure that anyone that's listening or watching doesn't do anymore. Don't scroll the internet and compare yourself. Um, it's a really, really awful thing to do. I feel really bad when I do it. Whether it's I'm not, I don't look that like that person. I don't work as hard as that person. I don't work out as often as that person, or I'm not working out people as hard as I should, or things like that. So we are all in the same storm, different boats, different bodies, but we're all trying to better ourselves. So we have to remember that there's people all around you that feel exactly the same way. When you're at the gym working out and you feel like you're not working as hard, nobody's looking at you. Nobody's looking at you. Nobody's assessing you. No one's saying, oh my God, what are you doing? That's not happening. So you can feel confident knowing you're there just to better yourself. You do what you can do. You push yourself and that's it. It's become an industry where it's all about looks. And one of my recommendations also is to not make your goals based on the way you look. There are a million other goals that you can achieve, like a, like more push-ups, more push-ups than your kid. Challenge your kid to a push-up contest, or you want to be able to go up the stairs without being winded, or you want to take time off your mile, or you want better posture, you want to sleep better. All of those things are a better attainable goal than I just want to be thinner. That's it. I found that when I was working at the Anytime Fitness gyms around here, that we had the question that was the big why. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, why are you here? And if, if people said, I just want to look thinner or be in better shape, you would say, why? There's got to be a specific okay. thing. And like, that's what you're saying. Yeah. Like, get up the stairs without being winded. That's exactly yeah. what it is. And then you can actually measure that goal. It's not, you know, we're not always going to look like other people we compare ourselves to. We all have different body shapes of you and me or me and my sister did the same workout and ate the same food, we'd end up looking different. That's it. All right, so tell me about yourself. What makes people want to train with you? I mean, I know, but we need the, <laughs> the listeners and the viewers who are just hearing your voice for the first time. They need to know why exactly do I go to train with Coach KO? Okay, so let's just mention really quick first that not everybody is gonna choose me as their trainer. I mean, I have my people, and I can show up as a bunch of different people, which is my favorite thing to do. 
So I am. I am loud. I am fun. I am going to make a little bit of a scene in the gym. And I have a client like that this morning that sings while we work out. I make it fun. I'll dance around. But you know what? I make fitness fun. There's your answer to the question. All right. So my ability to show up as a different person everywhere I go has brought that into training. So here at Studio X, I show up as a performer. I lead classes and have everyone have a great time. At Everly Retirement Home, I show up as a mobility coach, somebody to brighten their day, but to also help them. So I mix fun and the silly and the loving and kind with the educational, because they need to know. Or if you need me to be a drill sergeant, I can be that. If you need me to be a boot camp coach and be really inventive with my workouts, I can do that too. If you need me to hold your hand, I'm really good at that. But the way I do that is I'm just an empath by soul. I really can figure out you know, if you aren't able to tell me your goals, I can help you figure them out. And I really care. I take on my people. I take them on for a long time. And sometimes we see drastic changes. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes the, the brain improves and the mentality and the life improves instead. And that's okay. Sometimes you need a guided meditation. I got you there too. So you basically kind of give the people what they need. Because yeah. you, like you've said, not everyone needs or wants the same thing. Nope. You, you meet them where they are. And I care. So I don't take on a ton of people because I just, if I can't commit to you, I just don't. But I'll recommend you come to one of my classes with me if you want a, a great community and have a great time. Or, or honestly, if you need yoga, I'll send you to somewhere that does a really great yoga that I just don't do. Or I'll send you to spinning, which I don't teach. If it's good for you, I will recommend it to you, even if it's not through me. So now that we've gotten to know you, yep. where can the oh. people find you oh. so that they can come and experience it rather than just hear about it? Okay, here we go. Well, we're in Studio X right now. For the people listening, you can't see the amazing staging we did for this video. And we're going to do a tour. <laughs> yeah, don't but, worry. You'll have to go worry. on YouTube and watch the video. Oh, yeah. Yep, yep. Um, okay, like I said, Studio X, if you want a community class with, I do band camp, so we do loop bands and long bands, prehab, rehab stuff. Um, I tell people in class that you're, you're going throwing kettlebells or doing TRX or living your life and you're not having any injury because of bands, because of the stuff we do in band camp. And I invented that name, band camp. You did? Um, yep. Sweet. There you go. Yep. You heard it. <laughs> um, and, you know, they're spinning here, too, which I take for exercise, which is amazing. Dark, beautiful, blue and red light spinning room. Um, I'm also at Forte Fitness, which is a private training facility, so you need a membership to go there um, for boot camp and boxing and also rock steady boxing, which is Parkinson's boxing, which is some of the most fulfilling things I've ever done in my life. But I do in-home. I do in-home training. I do in-home group training. And I also do in-home like yoga nights where people will have me come and have like a family and we'll do like a dark yoga and meditation. It's really cool. So. And you also have a YouTube video series too. Oh, we brought up the YouTube. I had to. That's right. Forgot. Oh my gosh. During COVID, I went nutso and made a YouTube channel in my house by myself, 130 videos. If you go on there, Kaylin or fitness videos, but I have weight training, I have functional training, I have cardio training, I have stretching, I have high interval training, I have low interval training, I have outdoor training, I have pill 
general workouts, I have imaginary grocery store workouts. You've got to check that one out. I've also done custom videos and yoga classes, and there's 130. Social media, of course. I have a Facebook, Kaylin Orr. A lot of my stuff gets posted up there. And I have, oh man, a coach, K-O-K-O-A-C-H underscore K-O underscore is my Instagram and I'll tell you what I have on there everyone it's called Kaylin in the car and Kaylin in the car I safely um, mostly safely drive my car while I talk about crazy stuff and it's all very silly very funny we don't take ourselves too seriously but I give you a lot of info if you feel like laughing I would watch that but thank you so much for okay. allowing us into the studio and let's get, let's get on to the tour all right bye guys Thank you so much to Kaylin Orr for that great interview answering so many questions. There will be a second part with some more Q&A coming up in next week's podcast. Hopefully you'll stay tuned for that and more interviews probably to come in the podcast that follow down the road. Unidentified Flying Objects The idea of UFOs extraterrestrials, aliens, that has been a part of human culture for generations, centuries, millennia, from curious cave paintings to legends about some ancient architecture that has been influenced by aliens, curious lights in the sky. They existed long before commercial airliners were dotting the skies at night. In 1947, a supposed UFO crashed in Roswell, New Mexico, sparking a whole new fascination and interest with UFOs. Then they were in movies, Little Green Men from Mars, visits from UFOs, crop circles, things like that. They led to the next natural step, which was interaction with these beings. In the 21st century, as of now, there have been hundreds and hundreds of documented alien abduction stories. Whether you believe them or not is totally up to you. However, the first of these documented alien abductions took place in 1961 and took place in New England in the northern part of the state of New Hampshire. And that's what we're going to talk about now, the alien abduction story of Betty and Barney Hill. Betty and Barney Hill lived in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and in September of 1961, after being married for about 16 months, they decided to finally go on their honeymoon trip, which included going out to Niagara Falls, New York, and then up to Montreal, Quebec, Canada. The trip was pleasant, if not uneventful, for the relatively newlywed couple until they started their descent south back towards their home. On September 19th, they were heading south through the small town of Lincoln, New Hampshire. And if any of you have been to Lincoln, New Hampshire, it's a beautiful little town that I'll cover at some point on this podcast. But at night, it's very, very dark and very, very desolate. Heading southeast through Vermont into New Hampshire, late at night on September 19th, they were trying to beat a rainstorm home. They assumed they would get back to Portsmouth around 2 a.m., so it was very late at night when they were driving through Lincoln. As they headed south, they spotted a curious light in the sky that they thought might be a falling star, 
Barney was a World War II veteran, so he thought there was nothing to worry about, so they kept pressing on, but the light followed them. It zigged and zagged with the curves of the road. Although when you drive at night when you're a kid, you you think the moon is chasing you, how it moves along with the car. So I could see where the couple would think this is just an illusion, that this light is just playing tricks. At one point on the drive, their curiosity got the better of them, and they pulled over. Betty used a pair of binoculars to look at the light, which appeared to be a white light that was spinning. And she told Barney that he was ridiculous if he thought that this was a plane or a falling star. They pressed on a little further with the light following them, but eventually the worry started to get the better of them. They pulled over. Barney stepped out of the car. He had a handgun with him. By this time, the light was about 100 feet above them in the sky, and it was silent. There was no noise that could make, you know, like a helicopter. It was just silently spinning above them. Barney would later say that the object was as big as a jet, but round and flat like a pancake, and it blew his mind what he saw. In the windows were little gray men, all standing and staring down at him. With these little gray uniformed aliens in the windows staring at him, Barney lost it and ran back to the car to get out of there because he realized they were probably about to be captured. And they barreled down the road trying to escape this light in the darkness of this New Hampshire highway. They both heard loud rhythmic beeps coming from the area of the car's trunk. And at that point, both the couple lost consciousness. When they came to back in the car, it was two hours later than they remember. And they were 35 miles down the road from where they last remembered driving. They did arrive home in Portsmouth but couldn't shake the feeling that that was more than just some sort of a dream. In the weeks and months that followed, Betty started reading up books about UFOs. After Betty started having these horrible, vivid nightmares, and Barney developed an ulcer from stress, they decided to get help, and they went to a therapist named Benjamin Simon. It was during these sessions that the couple were both hypnotized separately, and recalled the events of that evening, and both their stories matched up. And with a little help piecing together the events of the story, this is what apparently occurred that night. A vessel landed down on top of the car, put the couple to sleep, and a few of these uniformed gray aliens walked them up onto the ship where they were separated. They were both subject to basic Medical examinations, including samples being taken of their hair, fingernails, uh, skin scrapings. Betty had a four to six inch needle injected into her abdomen. It was basically a pregnancy test. There was one alien that both of them referred to as the leader who seemed to be kind of in charge. One of the aliens explained to Betty where they were from, although I guess... He kind of said if she didn't know anything about the universe, it would be kind of pointless to tell her where they were from. But with help, she kind of drew a map of where their planet was. Both of the couple reiterated that the aliens were not really hostile, more curious. And eventually they let them go and they went home. And so with the help of Benjamin Simon, they pieced together what had happened to them on that night in September 1961. The big change came, though, in 1965 when their story was published in a Boston newspaper and suddenly everyone was interested in this story of alien abduction. It was the first real documented one. They were the subjects of a book 
They were also portrayed in a movie with James Earl Jones playing Barney. And of course, when it comes to UFOs and aliens and alien abduction, opinion is split where some people believe it, some people don't. The thing that always gets me about this story is the fact that Betty and Barney were an interracial couple in the early 1960s, which makes me think, why would they want to draw attention to themselves when just the fact that they were married would be a cause of a lot of problems for some people in the country? The Betty and Barney Hill story, though, kind of paved the way for the way that aliens and alien abductions were portrayed, not just in regular life, but in the media, in movies and books, with the examinations and such. Their story, their abduction, was not the first ever to be documented, but it was the most in-depth that was documented at the time, especially for 1961. If it wasn't an alien spacecraft that abducted the hills on that deserted road in New Hampshire in 1961, other experts say it could have been something sleep paralysis, hallucinations from a long drive late at night. But that's all subjective. It's all up to you what you think and what you believe. Barney died young at the age of 46 in 1969. Betty lived on and lived a much longer life, and she remained very deeply connected to the UFO community, going to UFO vigils routinely. She spent the rest of her years still living in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, before dying in 2004 at the age of 85. Throughout all of the publicity and the scrutiny which came after the story went public, Betty and Barney Hill never changed their story one bit. They remained steadfast that they were abducted by aliens that night in 1961, with Betty saying that she was visited several more times in the decades that followed after that initial abduction. If you want to learn more about Betty and Barney Hill, there's plenty of information on the internet. There's files about their hypnosis and what was there and different things like that. But that is the story of the first real huge documented case of supposed alien abduction. And it occurred right here in New England, in New Hampshire, in the northern part in Lincoln. It's time once again for This Week in History, a segment of the podcast where I go over four events that occurred this week in history, one local, one national, one world, and one pop culture. So let's jump right in and see what was happening during this week in history. This week in history locally, 102 years ago this week, on January 15th, 1919, the Great Boston Molasses Flood occurred. So around noon on January 15th, a giant tank ruptured. It was a 50-foot by 90-foot tank filled with millions of gallons worth of molasses in the north end of Boston. Incredibly, when the tank ruptured and the molasses was expelled from it, two million gallons spilled out into the streets. But it wasn't just a spill. This was a tsunami. The molasses reached 35 miles an hour flowing through the streets of the north end. It resulted in 21 deaths and 150 injuries, which is incredible. It's molasses. But it was a horrible scene. There was a long trial in court as people thought that it was a bomb that had gone off. It turned out to be 
flawed steel in the tank, which caused the rupture, and evidently some safety measures surrounding the tank were ignored. So this is something that could have been prevented, and it ended up being just such a horrible disaster. They said that some horses would die from this, getting stuck in, in the molasses. It's incredible to think about something like that becoming such a horrible disaster. Molasses, you don't think of it. 102 years ago this week, the Great Boston Molasses Flood was a disaster in the north end of Boston. Nationally, this week in history, 131 years ago, on January 10th, 1870, John D. Rockefeller incorporated his Standard Oil Corporation. The company was founded in Ohio, and by the early 1880s, Standard Oil controlled 90% of the U.S. pipelines and refineries. It basically was a monopoly. It dominated that industry, and Rockefeller became the richest man ever in the history of the world. But at the time, he was one of those magnates, you know, the ones that had all the money, Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, and the Vanderbilts, those type people that you hear about these days that were in the latter part of the 19th century that had comparable to today, billions and billions of dollars. And Standard Oil was allowed to kind of run unchecked for a couple of decades before it was dissolved in Ohio, and then it reformed in New Jersey later on. But then finally in 1911, it was ordered to officially dissolve because of the illegality of the monopoly. When Standard Oil was forced to dissolve, it ended up becoming split up into more than 30 companies. And some of those companies are still going strong today. They include Exxon, Mobil, and Chevron. And those are names you see everywhere, gas stations. And they came from the breakup of Standard Oil. And like I said earlier, John D. Rockefeller ended up becoming the richest man ever in the history of America when you adjust the money for inflation. By the time of his death in 1937, he had had a net worth of $418 billion when it's adjusted for inflation for 2020, but it wasn't all bad. He was also very philanthropic. He donated a lot of money. So when adjusted for inflation, by the time of his death, Rockefeller had donated $9.7 billion to various charities. But he made ungodly sums of money on the back of his Standard Oil Corporation, which he incorporated 131 years ago this week in Ohio. In world events, this week in history, 134 years ago, on January 10th, 1887, the schooner Maggie Dalling was shipwrecked off of the coast of Alaska. And this ship has a very interesting history and story that I felt I needed to include here. Originally, this ship was owned by the Alaska Commercial Company, which was basically a seal hunting company. It was captained by Alexander McDonald, and the ship did multiple runs, you know, the seal hunting. In the summer of 1886, Captain Alexander McDonald died, and the ship was taken over by his daughter named Calm. Essentially, Calm had been born on the ship. Basically, her life revolved around the Maggie Dowling and being on the sea. And she, at the age of 17, became captain of the ship. 
She was said to be pretty and brave and respected and referred to by the crew as Captain Calm. So she was a female teenage captain on a seal hunting ship in the 1880s, which I just find fascinating. However, as you heard at the beginning, there was obviously not a happy ending for this, as during rough weather on one of the runs between Vancouver, British Columbia, and the town of Sitka on the Alaskan coast, which is just southwest of Juneau, the ship was lost. So it crashed on some rocks as Captain Calm tried to navigate through the storm, and one of the survivors actually washed overboard and floated away and was rescued. And this survivor was the one that alerted the people to the ship. A rescue vessel was sent out and discovered Captain Calm. She was slumped over the wheel of the ship that was, you know, the ship was just destroyed, but she was still there. They thought she was dead too, but she was actually still alive, although she died a few days later from her injuries. She was basically pressed up against the wheel, so the injuries and exposure killed her. If there's any silver lining to it, her story became well-known and told that she was, I don't know if she was the first ever female captain of a ship, I'm sure not, but her story ended up being shared all around, even though it ended tragically 134 years ago this week. And finally, this week in history, 62 years ago this week, January 12th, 1959, Motown Records was formed by Barry Gordy in the city of Detroit, Michigan. Barry Gordy took an $800 loan out from his family to form the record studio, which he originally named Tamla Records. He actually also lived in the studios to make sure, kind of to make sure it was a success. You got to put in the, the work. On April 14th, 1960, that was when the studio was officially named Motown. It was the first African-American record label to reach national acclaim. And boy, did they have a lot of stars that came out of that. The first ever single through Motown Records when it was still Tamla Records was called Come To Me by Marv Johnson. That was released on January 21st, 1959. Their first big hit was from Barrett Strong, and it was called Money, That's What I Want. And that was in 1960. And when listing off the names of some of the biggest acts in the history of Motown, it's like a who's who in music history. You've got Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, Diana Ross and the Supremes, Stevie Wonder, the Jackson Five, the Temptations, the Four Tops, and so many more. And maybe for some of the younger generation, well, all right, I'll say my generation, ones that were born in the late 70s, early 80s, your first memories of Motown may be just like mine. And that's the Motown 25 show that they had that was the huge special. And for those that don't aren't familiar with it, that was the show where Michael Jackson unveiled his moonwalk when he was doing Billie Jean. And that became one of the most iconic moments maybe in music when you saw him do that. And I can remember vividly, Motown was an independent record label until it was purchased by MCA Records in 1988. It is actually still going today, although now it operates out of Los Angeles. It's part of Capitol Records. And the original studio in Detroit, Michigan, is a museum that you can go visit. 62 years ago this week, Motown Records was formed in Detroit and changed 
R&B and changed music in general for the better once it was formed. And that'll do it for this week in history. Tune in again next week. I'm sure I'll have some more interesting stuff. So I know I said at the end of the last episode that for the retro segment of episode six, I was going to talk about 1991, the year in music, being that it's 30 years ago now, which still blows my mind. But it got me to thinking that there was another anniversary that was occurring this week when the podcast would air that I wanted to share some memories of. So in short, 20 years ago, roughly around this week, I took a bus from Las Vegas, Nevada to Hyannis, Massachusetts, and moved from Vegas back to Cape Cod after living in Las Vegas for much of 2000. And it seems like ages ago now, but I wanted to share some of that story. So this will probably be a two-parter. I'm going to share the time in Vegas, and then in a future episode, I'll share the bus trip back because that's... That's a movie all in itself, that bus trip on its own. So flashback, January of 2000, I'm 22 years old, living on Cape Cod, still in college, and, you know, kind of, you grow up in the same place you want to explore, you want to see what else is out there. Believe me, I get it. I hear it from my two oldest nieces that are both in college about how they can't wait to go off and live somewhere else besides Cape Cod, and I get it. I spent my 20s moving away from here. So in January of 2000, I booked a flight to Las Vegas because my father had moved out there a couple years before, and I had an uncle and aunt and a cousin that lived out there also. So it seemed like a natural sort of leap to go out there. I'd have a stable situation. This was a visit. I visited. I loved it. It's so much different than anything I had been a part of. Just landing at the airport and there's slot machines when you're walking through the airport. It's like there's a culture shock right there. So I visited, loved it, came back to Cape Cod, decided that was it. I was moving back out there. So that's what I did. I packed up, took another flight out there and brought all my belongings with me and made Las Vegas my home. For those of you that have only visited Vegas and gone, you know, to the Strip, Living in Las Vegas is a lot different than visiting Las Vegas. It's very similar to almost anywhere else in the country where the people that live there work and they have their own lives. I believe in my entire time that I lived in Vegas, I was on the Strip once, and that was actually to take a drug test for a job I had applied for at a Target store. That was my first sort of slap in the face of reality, was hitting Las Vegas and then, okay, I need a job, and I went to Target, and I was making minimum wage in 2000, which was a whopping $6 an hour. That was a fun time. My sister Kate loves that story when we're sitting in kind of the orientation meeting and we're filling out our forms and they say, you know, next to your salary, write down $6 an hour. And it was kind of like a slap. Oh my God, what have I done? Target was fun though. I worked in the back stock room. I was the oldest of the crew when I was 22. And there were some crazy guys back there. Also, while I was there, I went to college too. I went to the Community College of Southern Nevada, which was 
a thousand foot walk from the end of my apartment complex, which was on West Charleston Boulevard. And it was a neat school. I went there and I took, I think one of the classes was broadcast writing. So it was like writing for a news show. That really helped out. And it helps out in doing things like this podcast, which is amazing that 20 years ago, things I learned, I can actually apply here. But life in Vegas was not mundane. It was exciting. I enjoyed it. I'd leave college, and within a mile of my apartment complex was every fast food restaurant you could imagine. I mean, anything, even the lesser known ones. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of Der Wiener Schnitzel, which was a hot dog place. We had Panda Express, was my favorite, a mile walk away. So you walk a mile in the 115 degree heat and get your Chinese food. You've burned enough calories just walking there, so it was all good. But besides that, the one that I made my home a lot was Jack in the Box. I'm sure a lot of you have heard of Jack in the Box, but oh, they're really good. Chili cheese curly fries. I would walk from school, stop at Jack in the Box, get my food, go home, do my homework, and eat. One of the best things was being on the West Coast. The time was three hours early, so you would get the NFL games would start at 10 a.m. on Sundays. So that was great to get up and have breakfast while watching the NFL. And even though I lived with my father in his apartment, he worked double shifts at a restaurant called the Lakes Lounge. And so he was never around. In all intents and purposes, it was like I was living on my own. And my uncle and aunt and cousin, they had their own lives in Vegas. It wasn't like I saw them all the time. I think I saw them my birthday, Thanksgiving, Christmas, like that. But otherwise, it was me living in Vegas and finding my way at 22 and then 23 when I had my birthday. I had no car, so I would take the bus everywhere, which was fun, or walk. Most of what I liked to do was within walking distance. I would walk to the gym. There was a gym called Q the Sports Club, which was a short walk away on Rainbow Boulevard. It was a three-story gym that had kind of a glass pyramid ceiling, and it was 24 hours a day. I remember going in there to get my membership, and the guy that showed me around, this is 100% true, he brings me to a hot tub and pool area, and he points to the hot tub and he says, yeah, if you ever wanted to come in here at 3 a.m., you know, bring a friend with you, no one's around. So yeah, that was kind of how I got indoctrinated to Las Vegas in the gym, was being told if you wanted to bring someone with you to the hot tub at 3 a.m. at the gym, you could do what you wanted. And yes, the heat was for real out there. I tell people when they say it's a dry heat, it's akin to having a hairdryer kind of blowing in your face. Every time I would leave the apartment, you'd open up, it would be like a hairdryer in your face. It was 110 degrees routinely there, which meant that I could do my laundry in the laundry room at the complex, but then if I wanted to dry them, I could hang them out on the balcony. We were up on the second floor. And this leads to another famous story that my sisters and brother enjoy. One day I did my laundry in the laundry room and hung the clothes out all over the balcony to let them dry. And then I went to school figuring, you know, it's the clothes are out there. It's fine. When I came back, I'm walking towards where the stairway was to the apartment, and I could see a shirt laying in the grass. And I walked over and I said, Oh my God, that's one of my shirts. And I looked up towards the balcony of my apartment, and there was nothing there. 
and no lie, scattered all around the parking lot was all my clothes that the wind had blown off the balcony and they were just laying there. And they were dry, but they were now dirty again and scattered all across the parking lot. Needless to say, I would never do that again. Another fun story that I like to tell consisted of me needing to walk across West Charleston Boulevard to the local Walgreens. This was late, like 11, 11.30 at night. I needed something. God knows what it was. But I crossed the road. There was nobody, nobody anywhere. And I'm walking into the parking lot of Walgreens, and suddenly a police car comes flying in, and the officer gets out and puts me against the hood of the car. I guess I was seen as a threat. I ended up not getting a ticket, but I was yelled at for jaywalking when there was nobody around, and I got put on the hood of the car in the Walgreens parking lot for jaywalking with no cars within sight at all. Holidays were fun, going and having Thanksgiving at this little casino called Arizona Charlie's with my dad, and they had the buffet there. There was a place called Chewy's that I went a couple times and had lunch with my uncle, aunt, and cousin. That was kind of their favorite place. And it was a different feel, a different vibe than Cape Cod in the way that everything was open and sprawling. I mean, after all, it's in the middle of a desert. So naturally, I know what you're saying. If everything was great in Vegas and you enjoyed, well, work except for not making money, and college and having the chance to have any kind of food you want, the gym right there, and you don't need a car, why did you end up leaving and going back to Cape Cod? Well, that leads into another good story. So at one point, I think this was in December of 2000, and some family from Cape Cod came to visit, my Nana, my Aunt Susan, and my Uncle Bob. And when family comes to Vegas, you want to go out to the casinos and have a good time. So even though I didn't really go to the casinos when I was just living on my own there, I went with the family. And there was a place way at the end of West Charleston Boulevard, a new casino called the Suncoast, which is now not new. It was new back then. But that was the place we all went to because it was kind of centrally located and not on the strip. And I went in there and we all started gambling. And I started playing roulette. And roulette is fun, except when you forget to take into account that what you're using for the chips to bet is real money and it's not a video game. So at first I started winning. And I was winning a lot. I was up several thousand dollars, which was great. But the rest of the family was at the table and they kind of looked at me and said, well, this table's yours, so we're all going to clear out and give it to you. And that must have been the turn of my luck because I started losing and slowly I was whittling away at my stack of chips until I got all the way to where I had no chips left. And I had in my mindset, you know, this table's hot. I got to get more money. So I started running to the ATM machine, pulling money out, left and right, going back, betting, losing, going back, betting, losing, over and over. And then we got done at the end of the day, and we left, and everything seemed to be all right until the next morning. And that was when I went to the ATM. I I had an account at a Washington Mutual bank. And back then, you could take out $5 from your ATM machine to spend. Now it has to be, I think, $10, $20. Anyway, I went to take out $5 for breakfast, and it said insufficient funds. And I said, oh, boy, that's not good. So I checked my balance, and it was, I think, negative $400. So basically, I had blown all the money that I had made at the casino before. 
then blew through everything in my account and overdrew it by several hundred dollars, all in the name of, this table's hot, I gotta play roulette. Now that one gambling time wouldn't have been the end-all be-all, but it was kind of the final nail in the coffin because before then, I was doing the same. Where I would get my paycheck from Target, and I had times, a couple times, that I would go to an Albertsons supermarket or a 7-Eleven and blow through most of or all of my paycheck at the Kino and slot machines on a Friday. So bottom line was I had a nice gambling problem. Even though I didn't go to the strip, gambling is legal and it's everywhere. And if you've got a problem, you got to know what moderation is. And I did not. So that led to the first week of January in 2001 and me buying a one-way bus ticket on Greyhound from Las Vegas that would end up back in Hyannis, and I would be back on Cape Cod after my 2000 in Vegas. And that's the story, well, it kind of cliffs notes too, story of my time in Las Vegas that ended about 20 years ago this week. So there's some retro for you. You get to hear about some of my favorite stories from Vegas and what made it special and why I would still love to go back and visit my Aunt, uncle, and cousin are all still out there, so that might happen once COVID ends. Maybe by the end of 2021, I'll be back out there to visit Vegas. But I promise you, at some point in the future, I will do the second part of this story, which is the bus trip back, which is exciting. And I'll do the 1991 year in music review that I want to do in a future episode. But I hope you had some laughs at my expense from my time in Vegas. That's going to do it for another episode of the In My Footsteps podcast. Episode 6, the first of the new year, is now in the books. Thank you so much to everyone who has listened to any of these episodes. I really appreciate it. I'm going to keep working hard trying to make each episode better than the one before. That being said, we've got another one coming next week. It's my first attempt at doing three weeks on and one week off. So we're going to have part two of my interview with Kaylin Orr, Coach KO. It's going to be good. I got some good Q&A in there for her. But there's more than that to episode seven. We're going to take a trip up to the beautiful ski resort town of Stowe, Vermont. We're going to go this week in history again, including a really interesting one about the history of MTV's Unplugged show. And also, we're going to go back in the day and relive some old school snow days some of the fun that we used to have when we were kids all around the neighborhood and the stuff we used to do in the snow. As always, find me on Facebook at the In My Footsteps podcast page. On Twitter, Chris Centerland is my handle. Instagram, I've got two pages. My personal one, which is all my photography, and then the In My Footsteps podcast has its own page. I also have my YouTube channel. I just posted a new video 4K New England featuring Fort Tabor Park in New Bedford, Massachusetts. That's a good one. I'll also be posting the video part of my first interview with Kaylin Orr today. It's good. We take a little tour of Studio X, so that'll be good. That'll be going up next week. Check out my website, ChristopherSetterland.com. It's been run by my good friend Barry Menard, the great graphic designer. He designed this in 2008 and he's been keeping up on it since then even though he's so busy that he really shouldn't have the time to do that but he's such a great guy and i really appreciate him 
but on that site, we've got all five of my books that are currently out are there for sale. They're also on Amazon. So if you want to check out the In My Footsteps travel series, Historic Restaurants of Cape Cod and Cape Cod Nights. I wanted to give a shout out to DJ Williams, whose song James River is what you hear in the intro and outro. He's got some stuff up on SoundCloud. It's a great song. I love it. I have it on my iPod now. And also a shout out to Kevin McLeod, whose song Lightless Dawn was what you heard at the beginning of the Betty and Barney Hill UFO segment earlier in the podcast. I had been looking for that song for a while. I heard it on a YouTube video and couldn't find it anywhere. And then I heard it on another video more recently and actually tracked it down. So tune in next week for episode seven. Until then, stay safe, everyone. The coronavirus pandemic is not over yet. We're getting closer, but just keep safe. And remember, don't walk in anyone else's footsteps. Create your own path on this journey we call life. And I'll see you next week. Take care, everyone.